Welcome to my podcast, my dad podcast. This is the 1787 Project, the podcast version of the lectures for my socially distanced class on the U.S. Constitution at the University of Missouri. I'm your professor and host, Justin Dyer. In 2010, Congress passed and President Obama signed the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, what's often since then just been called Obamacare. One key provision of that bill required most Americans to maintain some kind of minimal health insurance coverage or make what the bill called a shared responsibility payment to the federal government. The Affordable Care Act called this payment a penalty that you have to pay to the IRS along with your taxes. But when Democrats were pushing the bill, they specifically argued that this was not a tax. As just one example, here's President Obama speaking with ABC News' George Stephanopoulos in 2009. You were against the individual mandate during the campaign. Under this mandate, the government is forcing people to spend money, fining you if you don't. How is that not a tax? Well, hold on a second, George. Here's what's happening. You and I are both paying 900 bucks uh, on average, our families, in higher premiums because of uncompensated care. Now, what I've said is, that if you can't afford health insurance, you certainly shouldn't be punished for that. That's just piling on. If, on the other hand, we're given tax credits, we've set up an exchange, you are now part of a big pool, we've driven down the costs, we've done everything we can, and you actually can afford health insurance, but you've just decided, you know what, I want to take my chances. And then you get hit by a bus, and you and I have to pay for the emergency room That may care. be, but it's still that's, a tax that, increase. That, that, no, no that, that, that's not true, George. The, for us to say that you've got to take a responsibility to get health insurance is absolutely not a tax increase. What it's saying is, is that we're not going to have other people carrying your burdens for you. But if it wasn't a tax, what was it? What authority did Congress have to enact it? The individual mandate says that you must purchase health insurance from a private health insurance provider or make a payment to the federal government. And if we're not going to say that Congress was exercising its taxing power to do this, then the only other enumerated power that seems plausible is the power to regulate interstate commerce. One of the early challenges to the Affordable Care Act was along just these lines. The National Federation of Independent Businesses brought a case against then-Secretary of Health and Human Services Kathleen Sebelius, alleging, among other things, that Congress had no authority under the Commerce Clause to enact the individual mandate in the first place. And here, all the cases we've been discussing become relevant. Here was the state of play with our Commerce Clause precedents in 2010 when the Affordable Care Act was passed. Cases like Wickard v. Filburn and Gonzalez v. Raich allowed Congress to regulate non-economic, intrastate activity that had an effect on some national market that Congress wanted to regulate. In the case of Wickard, that was the interstate market in wheat. In the case of Gonzalez, it was the interstate market in weed. In both cases, Congress regulated an activity, growing a certain crop for home consumption, that was not itself interstate commerce, but would in the aggregate have a substantial effect on interstate commerce. But there are limits to this power. As we saw in the cases striking down the Gun-Free School Zones Act in U.S. v. Lopez and the Violence Against Women Act in U.S. v. Morrison, in the one case, Congress couldn't ban possession of firearms in school zones as a regulation of commerce. In the other, Congress couldn't make gender-motivated violence a federal crime. In those cases, the Rehnquist Court insisted that there are limits to Congress's power to regulate commerce. That power can't extend to every activity that goes on in the United States. 
That would be to convert the federal government into one of unlimited powers rather than one of limited and enumerated powers. Rehnquist summarized the court's past precedents in Lopez and identified three broad categories of things and activities that could be regulated under the Commerce Clause. First, Congress could regulate the channels of interstate commerce. Second, Congress could regulate the persons or things that moved in interstate commerce. And finally, Congress could regulate activities that substantially affect interstate commerce. And whether or not people buy insurance certainly affects the market for health care. Does the individual mandate thus fall into that third category that could be regulated under the Commerce Clause? The National Federation of Independent Businesses said no. And the crucial difference, they said, is that in this instance, Congress was regulating inactivity and penalizing somebody for not acting. They weren't saying if you enter the market for health insurance, then you're subject to this national regulation. They were saying you must enter the market for health insurance, and if you don't, you have to pay a fine. And of course, that fine, that shared responsibility payment, was an essential feature of the Affordable Care Act. We want more people buying insurance to lower the costs for everybody else. If healthy people wait until they get sick to buy insurance, then the costs of insurance go up for everybody in the pool. You need healthy people paying more into the pool than they take out. So this challenge to the individual mandate was, in a way, a challenge to the entire law. Part of the argument was that if the individual mandate falls, then the whole Affordable Care Act has to fall with it. But that's not exactly what happened. Chief Justice John Roberts joined Scalia, Thomas, Alito, and Kennedy in arguing that the individual mandate can't be sustained as an exercise of Congress's power to regulate commerce. But then he joined Sotomayor, Breyer, Ginsburg, and Kagan in arguing that the individual mandate, despite people like President Obama saying it wasn't a tax, was in constitutional terms a tax, and on that basis could be sustained under Congress's power to tax. The individual mandate survived, but the case also represented the most significant limit on Congress's power to regulate commerce since Lopez and Morrison. Here's the discussion of the individual mandate in the Chief Justice's opinion announcement. The first provision at issue here is often referred to as the individual mandate. That provision requires individuals to maintain a specified level of health insurance. For many, the mandate must be satisfied by purchasing health insurance from a private company. Those who do not obtain the required coverage owe the IRS what the Act calls a shared responsibility payment. The question is whether Congress has the constitutional power to enact the individual mandate. The government advances two arguments that it does. First, the government contends that the Constitution's Commerce Clause authorizes the mandate. Second, the government says that Congress could enact the statute under its constitutional power to lay and collect taxes. Turning first to the Commerce Clause. Congress has never before attempted to use the Commerce power to order individuals not engaged in commerce to buy an unwanted product. And nothing in the text of the Constitution suggests it can. The Commerce Clause allows Congress to regulate commerce. The power to regulate commerce presupposes the existence of commercial activity to be regulated. Our precedent reflects that understanding. As expansive as our cases construing the commerce power have been, they all have one thing in common. They uniformly describe the power as reaching activity. It is nearly impossible to avoid the word when quoting our cases. The individual mandate, by contrast, does not regulate existing activity. It instead compels individuals to become active in commerce by purchasing a product they do not want. The government contends that Congress can do this because the failure to purchase health insurance has a substantial effect on interstate commerce. In particular, 
the government focuses on the costs that the uninsured as a group impose on the health care system when they need care but are unable to pay for it. Allowing Congress to regulate individuals precisely because they do not do something, however, would vastly expand federal power. People, for reasons of their own, often fail to do things that would be good for them or for society. Those failures, joined with the similar failures of others, can have a substantial effect on interstate commerce. Under the government's logic, that authorizes Congress to compel unwilling citizens to act as the government would have them act. Congress already enjoys vast power to regulate much of what we do. Accepting the government's theory would allow Congress the same license to regulate what we do not do. That would fundamentally change the relationship between the American citizen and the federal government. Now, to an economist, perhaps, there is no difference between activity and inactivity. Both can have measurable economic effects on commerce. But the distinction between doing something and doing nothing would not have been lost on the framers, who were practical statesmen, not academic theorists. The framers gave Congress the power to regulate commerce, not to compel it. For over 200 years, this Court's decisions and Congress's actions have reflected this understanding. There is no reason to depart from it now. But the government says that health insurance is different because everyone will eventually need health care. According to the government, that means the uninsured, even though doing nothing, can be, quote, regulated in advance. That assertion is inconsistent with a limited conception of federal power. The Commerce Clause is not a general license to regulate an individual from cradle to grave simply because he will predictably engage in particular transactions. The government also contends that Congress could enact the individual mandate because the mandate is important to other parts of the Health Care Act. Other provisions of the Act, whose validity under the Commerce Clause is not challenged here, restrict the ability of health insurance companies to charge higher prices to less healthy individuals. Those provisions will likely cause insurance companies to raise the prices they charge everyone. According to the government, the individual mandate is, in the Constitution's language, necessary and proper to support those provisions because it will compel healthy individuals to subsidize the cost of insuring those who are less healthy. Our cases interpreting the Necessary and Proper Clause have been very deferential to Congress's determination of what is necessary. But we have also explained that the clause is not a grant of a great and independent power. The clause only allows Congress to do things that are incidental to the exercise of its other powers, Compelling people to enter commerce precisely because they have chosen not to cannot be considered a necessary and proper supplement to the Commerce Clause. There are separate writings on this subject, but a majority of this Court agrees that the Commerce Clause cannot sustain the individual mandate. That brings us to the government's second argument, that the mandate may be upheld under Congress's power to lay and collect taxes. The government's tax power argument asks us to interpret the statute not as ordering individuals to buy insurance, but rather as imposing a tax on those who go without it. Under the mandate, if an individual does not buy health insurance, the only consequence is that he must make an additional payment to the IRS when he pays his taxes. The government says that means the mandate can be interpreted as establishing a condition, not only health insurance, that triggers a tax the required payment to the IRS. 
Under that theory, the mandate makes going without insurance just another thing the government taxes, like buying gasoline or earning income. And if the mandate is just a tax hike on taxpayers who don't have health insurance, it may be within Congress's constitutional power to tax. What happens next takes us right to the current Supreme Court term. In 2017, Republicans controlled the House of Representatives, the Senate, and the White House. And what they did was to remove the penalty from the insurance mandate. If you don't have insurance, there's no longer a penalty. But for just that reason, some have argued that the mandate is no longer a tax. And if it's no longer a tax, then Congress no longer has the authority to tell you to buy insurance. And without that provision, the Affordable Care Act falls. This is precisely what the Northern District Court of Texas held in a case that's now on appeal at the Supreme Court. On November 10th, the Supreme Court held oral arguments in the case of California versus Texas, and these oral arguments now because of COVID are being done by an old-school conference call. During those arguments, court watchers paid particular attention to the newest justice on the court, Amy Barrett, to see what she might make of all of this. Most people listening to the oral arguments in that case thought it would be unlikely for the Supreme Court to strike down the Affordable Care Act just because Congress zeroed out the penalty for the individual mandate but it'll be several months into the new year before the court announces its decision in that case. But we're left here with a reminder about the significance of elections. We now have Justices Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett on the Supreme Court, rather than three very different justices we would have had if Hillary Clinton had won the election in 2016. When we come back from Thanksgiving, then, we'll spend the last two weeks of our class and of this podcast thinking about the Supreme Court's ongoing role policing the political process and its impact on our elections. Thank you.